Welcome to Live Well with Southwell. Southwell is dedicated to helping you be equipped with the best tools and knowledge to make sure you and your family live a healthy life. Live Well with Southwell features interviews with experts across many areas of healthcare and wellness. We hope you enjoy listening and most importantly, living well. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Liza Tillman, and today we are joined by Dr. Sharon Nakashi, a pediatric hospitalist who has recently joined our team at Southwell and Tiff Regional Medical Center. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Nakashi about SIDS prevention. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Nakashi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So as we always do, we want to start um, learning a little bit more about your family, where you're from, and your educational background. Well, mostly Georgia-based. I did go to Kennesaw State University for undergrad, so go Owls. (laughs) Um, I went to uh, West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine in Lewisburg, West Virginia. That's where I met my lovely husband, Dr. Andrew Nakashi. Yes, who we've talked (laughs) to recently. (laughs) Um, We have... I've been kind of all over the place since then. I did my residency in Savannah, Georgia, and then we uh, spent a few years in Jackson, Michigan, where we most recently moved from. Okay. So did, and you guys have just been here in the past month and a half-ish, right? We moved in the beginning of August, but my first month is almost done at Southwell. So our first official month anniversary is tomorrow. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I know we're so excited to have you. So um, you mentioned while we were talking before we started this that um, you have some kids. So tell us about them. We do. I have, uh, we have a three-year-old and a nine-month-old. So we are definitely living the the parent life. Yeah, yeah. So if, as a pediatrician, you're you're well aware of all the parent side of things and the doctor side of things. Exactly. <laughs> I definitely try and practice what I preach. So Good. all of the things that I recommend, I definitely try and implement in my own life. Wonderful. So you've got that experience on both sides. So uh, you mentioned that you've been with Southwell for about a month now. Yes. Okay. And um, let's talk about, because we've talked to pediatricians before, so I think this is really interesting. What does a pediatric hospitalist do and what do you not necessarily do? That's a good question. And there is a lot of confusion around kind of the terms pediatric hospitalist versus pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And I am a pediatrician. I just focus solely on patients who require hospitalization. Uh, The majority of my patients are newborns. So most babies are born in hospitals. Mm -hmm. And that is a very uh, tenuous time in a child's life as they go from in utero to the outside world. There's a lot of transitions that happen. And sometimes babies just need a little help getting there. So that's the majority of kind of my practice right now. But there are also plenty of childhood issues that arise that require brief hospital stays, Mm -hmm. sometimes longer hospital stays, depending on um, the complexity of the child. Okay. So we had kind of mentioned as we were talking before that you would see maybe patients in the ER if somebody has a broken arm or or I don't know, any kind of (laughs) scenario that a a child might come to the ER for, you're the one that's going to see them, not necessarily their pediatrician that they see in the office, right? Correct. Yes. Um, Right now we are, we have a fully staffed um, pediatric hospitalist team. So if there's any issues, uh, then we are going to be the ones spearheading that uh, hospitalization. Uh, We do have a wonderful team of outpatient providers who provide nighttime coverage, but unless there's an emergency, then the hospitalist team will come in during the day and manage patients. 
So let's dive into our topic today, which is SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. So tell us what it is and how prevalent it is. So SIDS is sudden infant death syndrome, like you said. A lot of the modern terminology is shifting to more of a sudden unexpected death syndrome, meaning infants under a year of age don't typically have issues. And so when they die, it's sudden and it's unexpected. And so it is something that it's not very common, Mm -hmm. only about 3,500 babies die of it a year. Um, But it is tragic in every situation. And Georgia, unfortunately, is one of the states that has one of the higher end of prevalences in the state. So um, it's definitely something that we want to discuss because we want to um, prevent these these deaths whenever possible. Sure. So what are the main causes of SIDS? And I know this is this is a pretty sensitive topic. um, But like you said, this is a good we're just trying to spread the word about um, preventing these kinds of things. So what what are the main causes of SIDS? So the breakdown of SIDS is kind of three main categories and they're kind of equally divided into kind of a third um, as far as the causes of SIDS. Um, The main category that is kind of preventable is the sleep deaths or asphyxiation or smothering that you kind of hear about a lot. Um, A third of it is kind of undetermined, meaning there's no exact reason for it, but we can't really rule out a possible sleep-related death. And then the third cause is what is truly called sudden infant death syndrome. And there's not really a cause for it. They've done the autopsy, they've done the analysis, and there really isn't any, a good explanation for why the baby died. Mm-hmm. So most of the um, deaths are kind of related to a few different risk factors. Um, young maternal age, so people who have, women who have babies less than the age of 20 mm-hmm. are at higher risk of having a baby who has who dies of sudden infant death syndrome. Smoking is a big uh issue and maternal smoking is a big issue that uh, does contribute to sudden infant death syndrome as much as 20 to 25 to 40 percent of infant deaths can be attributed to maternal smoking so we'll kind of talk about that a little bit more um certainly unsafe sleep practices is a big contributor as you know we said it can be up to a third maybe even up to two-thirds of sudden infant death can be attributed to these unsafe sleep environments Mm -hmm. Certainly things that can't be um, really controlled are preterm birth or low birth weight, twins, and um, siblings who have died of SIDS are all kind of risk factors that put a child at higher uh, chance of dying from SIDS. This whole concept is pretty terrifying to a new parent, right? This is, Absolutely. <laughs> this is you know, we, we obviously want to do everything we can to take care of our children and prevent um, something horrible like this from happening. So what, what can you do to, what can parents do to prevent SIDS? I, I know you said sometimes things are completely out of our control, but what are the things that parents can control um, to, to make this better and to kind of put parents at ease right. uh, if they are having a child for the first time? There's simple things that you can do that can protect your child from having any issues. The biggest thing is creating a safe sleep environment. So that seems like a very nebulous term. Right. So (laughs) what does that look like? (laughs) The basics of it are you want to put your baby to, to sleep on their back every time that they go to sleep. 
once they get to be a little bit older, you know, a year or so, they'll kind of, well, even sooner than that, they'll start (laughs) rolling over and Mm -hmm. kind of moving around on their own. But you still want to put them to sleep on their back. That helps keep their airway nice and open and helps prevent any issues as far as smothering and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest um, reasons why SIDS has declined in recent years was because the American Academy of Pediatrics launched their back to sleep campaign. Mm -hmm. And that is really shown to be very beneficial to parents and families. Okay. In addition to putting your baby to sleep on their back, it's important to also keep their bed space clear of other objects. So blankets, pillows, stuffed animals, crib bumpers, you know, all the fun stuff that you get at baby showers. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> not that, in the crib. <laughs> that's not something that you want to keep in your baby's sleep environment, especially mm-hmm. for the first year. Um, there is definitely a lot of people who put their babies to sleep in their car seat or in a rocker. And those also have really been, uh, those also have really contributed to uh, sleep deaths, unfortunately, in this country. So it might seem easy to you know, I, when you say a rocker, maybe like one of the, I think they're called rock and plays where right. it's, it's so convenient because it really helps them calm down and everything, but right. we don't want them to sleep in the night unsupervised in those. Is that exactly. correct? Exactly. Okay. So, you know, I always talk to parents about the difference between supervised sleep versus unsupervised mm-hmm. sleep. And really the AAP doesn't recommend any sleep in any of these devices. Um, and especially, you know, it gets to be a comfort thing because babies will sleep where they're most comfortable mm-hmm. and they'll sleep where they're consistently placed. Yeah. So if you're constantly putting them in the rocker to calm down, mm-hmm. to relax, then that's what they're going to associate with safe sleep or they're going to associate with sleep in general. Okay. But it's unfortunately not safe. (laughs) Right. It's convenient, but it's not, not super safe. And then you mentioned the car seat. Yes. Um, I know, I would assume that most of us would know that that's not a place for a child to sleep in the middle of the night or anything. But I know that sometimes carrying the baby in from the car, they're already asleep, keeping them in it. Um, what, what's like a safe time period for that? Or do we just need to immediately take them out and risk waking them up? Yes, that is always the frustration because as any parent will know, a sleeping baby is a blessing because (laughs) you don't get that very often, especially in the first few months of life. Um, and our lives have definitely shifted so that we're much more mobile. Mm -hmm. And along with that, we have car seats that allow for safe mobility. But it's also important to know that even though it's safe for driving, it's not a safe place for sleeping, especially because a lot of the car seats will come out of their base, which is really what keeps the baby in the correct position to breathe and to sleep and uh, appropriately tested in that environment. So, The real answer is you really want to get them out as soon as you can once you get home and transfer them to an appropriate sleep environment, either their crib, bassinet, whatever you have that's appropriate for them. And that's really interesting you say that, that it's... It's of course safe for them to sleep in the car. We're we're okay with that. I never considered the fact that it was the position of the the base and everything. So when they come home and you put them on the floor or on the couch or something, that's they're no longer in that right position. Exactly. And okay. a lot of times when we do um, test, so some babies who are, have certain conditions, whether they're small or preterm birth, they have to have formal testing um, 
in their car seat yeah. prior to even going home. And that is one of the big things that we test on is, you know, making sure that the car seat is in the appropriate position. Okay. So yes, it, that even though it's term babies are less likely to have issues with the car seat. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of, even in daycare centers and that sort of thing, a lot of the, these cases of deaths have occurred because they're placed in the car seat for too long. Okay. So again, these are the factors that we can control and right. very easily we can, yes. as much as we, again, want, don't want to wake up a sleeping baby. That's, <laughs> it's much better to just go ahead and do that. So you yes. talked about safe sleeping environments. Um, what are your thoughts on co-sleeping with, um, is that a safe sleeping environment? I know that that's yeah. kind of a, a hot topic and I know some people are very pro co-sleeping and some people are not. What is, what, what are your thoughts? So it's definitely a hot topic yeah. <laughs> and one with a lot of kind of advocates on, mm-hmm. um, both sides, yeah. really. Um, the research, unfortunately, does not support co-sleeping. Okay. That is definitely something that, um, there has been a lot of research on. It seems kind of counterintuitive because, you know, people say, well, people have been co-sleeping for millennia and that's right. just kind of a natural human state. Mm-hmm. But the reason why you had such high infant mortality was because of accidents that happened with co-sleeping. Mm-hmm. So once you, with the American Academy of Pediatrics has really dived into the data, they have shown that it's really important to room share, not bed share. Okay. So that means that you have a bed for the baby dedicated for the baby in the same room as the parent. And that is something that can help prevent SIDS as well. Okay. So it's important that, like we said, they have their safe sleep environment. So they have their bassinet free of all their clutter and they're close enough to the parent that they're able to be continually monitored Mm -hmm. without the risk of having any sort of accidental injury during sleep. Okay. So what would be, I have a few friends who have not babies, children who still like to to sleep in the bed with mom and dad. (laughs) What would be an appropriate age for children to start sleeping in the bed with mom and dad? If that was a thing that just had to happen, let's just say, (laughs) what would you think? It's really, so the highest risk for sudden infant death syndrome and especially the risk from injury due to co-sleeping is really for infants younger than four months of age. Okay. So in general, the high, about 90% of uh, SIDS deaths occur in the first six months of life. Okay. So that risk definitely decreases after that. The highest overall risk is under a year of age. So if you really want to share your bed with your mm-hmm. child, then I would say, you know, you at a minimum, I would wait at least six months. Okay. Um, some of the newer data is kind of looking into this issue because it yeah. is, you know, it is, a, like I said, it's a hot topic. People want to sleep with their babies. Mm-hmm. And as a mother, I can say you want to have your child as close to you as you can. Sure. Because that's very reassuring that everything yeah. is going well. But and convenient too, right? Like right. They're right there. You're not having to get up. Everything's exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're breastfeeding, especially, it's, mm-hmm. you know, that's breastfeeding is one of the greatest ways that you can prevent sudden infant death syndromes. The data all support that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is exhausting, especially for those middle of the night feeds when your baby is, uh, you know, a couple of months old and they're still eating every three hours through the night. Right. Um, 
So it, that's one of the reasons why it's important to have a bed close by that they can still be protected in their own environment, mm-hmm. whereas and they can still be close enough that you can kind of monitor for any sort of issues with breathing or any other concerns that you might have. And there's so many great things on the market now that the bassinet can be right next to the bed. It's like they're in the bed with you, but not right. necessarily. There's that safe barrier. Right. Um, and so that's. I think that especially for new parents, that's got to be something that you think about all the, all the factors. You know, and some of the new bassinets, they even rock for you. So you don't even have to, you don't have to sit there and and rock it back and forth. It's great. (laughs) I mean, technology is pretty, pretty (laughs) wonderful. (laughs) Exactly. Um, so we're, we've talked about a safe sleeping environment. I'm, I'm just a few things come to mind. Um, you mentioned no crib bumpers. They're super cute. We like them, but that's, And I, I think the reason that um, some parents might think to have those is the slats on a crib might, you know, are they going to get stuck in them? Or are they going to hit their head? And it's nice to have like a soft thing. Why, right. why do we not want to have crib bumpers? So that's been a big issue um, that has kind of revolutionized the development of cribs over the past couple mm-hmm. of decades um, because it was kind of seen as a protective measure and it wasn't recognized as a true cause of concern until, you know, babies were dying and people were wondering why. Um, Because they have basically done away with the crib bumper recommendation, they've actually changed the um, design of cribs. Okay. So now they're designed so that kids can't like get their fingers and right, pull yeah. legs through or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And the, the slats have to be a very small distance apart so that we're not risking, you know, babies falling out, babies having, getting stuck in there yeah. or anything like that. The biggest thing that you want to make sure you have in the crib is you want to have a breathable environment. Mm-hmm. So that means you either have a mesh or you have something that can allow airflow in the crib without providing a barrier that they could suffocate on. Yeah. Cause even, I, I think you, you tend to think of a newborn as a super still and not moving and they're, they, they can move everywhere <laughs> and they can, you know, maybe I'm not sure what age children start rolling over, but like you said, if they're pushed up against that, it, it can be. So again, these are all just easy, yeah. super easy factors to know about that we can control, right? To, yeah. To not, I always like, tell my newborn parents, you know, babies are super wiggly, but mm-hmm. they are not strong at all. Yeah. So they can wiggle into these little, little tiny crevices between mm-hmm. things, but they have no strength to get themselves out of that position. So it's really important that as the parent, you kind of are the guide to make sure that they don't end up in those positions to begin with. So a nice empty bed, no blankets. How do you feel about um, swaddlers, sleep sacks, things like that? They are great, honestly, because if used correctly, Mm -hmm. they have definitely revolutionized kind of how people, how babies sleep and how Mm -hmm. parents treat sleep because they even have like the, the sleep sacks that, you know, have like the back to sleep on them Mm -hmm. and, you know, reminders that help parents remember that it's important to keep your baby in the correct sleep position to help prevent these tragic incidences. Okay. So definitely talk to your pediatrician as you're going along. You're, you're one that you see, you know, that you're going to see after you have your baby, but you have these conversations with parents as well in the hospital. That is definitely one of the biggest things that I talk about when we do discharge planning, just because 
it is something that if I can prevent any newborn death, then sure. that is definitely one of my big goals. So we've talked about the, these factors that we can control, obviously safe sleep environment. What about the drug and alcohol that you mentioned before? So definitely, you know, there is a huge epidemic in this country with substance abuse and alcohol abuse, and it affects all aspects of society. So it's not really targeted at any one population. And it is something that we are seeing babies who have been exposed to substances in utero, and that also puts them at increased risk for issues and complications after birth. Um, certainly, it makes sense that if a parent is not fully aware of the situation, then they're not going to be able to protect their child yeah. against any sort of accidental death or injury. Um, so it kind of goes hand in hand with the co-sleeping conversation that we had earlier. If you're just not aware of your surroundings, then that puts your child at an increased risk of having uh, an issue that is unfortunately unresolvable. Yeah. So clearly we don't want to smoke partake in drugs and alcohol while we're pregnant, but right. also, um, and that I'm assuming that would apply to everybody who comes in contact with a baby, not just the mom, right? Everybody who's, who's around needs to be, um, completely aware of, of absolutely. Yes. You do nev never want to have an altered mental status when you're taking care of a, a child, especially an infant who's going through lots of physiologic changes that they have absolutely no control over. Sure. Yeah. So kind of back to the, the sleep, safe sleep environment. I know that things like the owlet, the angel monitor are very popular these days. I see it on all my friends' baby registries. Are they accurate and do they help or do they kind of hinder and maybe add to anxiety? What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question <laughs> and one I love to get because I love to explain kind of the differences yeah. between kind of a truly medical device versus a technology that is definitely a byproduct of modern parenting, right? Because we love technology and we love our babies and we want to protect them as much as we can. Unfortunately, this is one of those situations where technology seems to be more of a hindrance than a help. Mm -hmm. Okay. There are very few situations that apnea monitors are kind of really used in medicine nowadays. Um, there has been a lot of research on the topic just because we used to send, you know, a lot of babies home on apnea monitors, especially like preterm babies, sure. babies who have true medical mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. And even then, it really wasn't associated with any improved statistics with sudden infant death syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely is only recently been used on normal, healthy babies. And so the research has kind of been moving towards more development of understanding of why SIDS happens. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't show that there's a correlation between apnea itself and sudden infant death syndrome. Really? Okay. So that's really is a long kind of pondered question in medicine mm -hmm. that a lot of people have kind of latched onto mm -hmm. because it seems like it's something that we can fix, right? It seems like if you just wake the baby up when they're not breathing, then mm -hmm. everything will be fine. Fortunately, the data doesn't support that that's really the true cause of SIDS okay. and it's not really something that the monitoring tends to help. Okay. So a lot of times what I see is Parents are kind of over fearful, but under cautious, meaning okay. they're 
overly afraid that something's going to happen to their child. And so anytime there's a, any sort of alarm or any sort of issue, yeah. then they kind of go into this panic state about what's happening. Right. And that's ultimately not a great situation for yeah. anybody because, you know, they're constantly, the parents are constantly mm-hmm. in this fearful state. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the child is constantly being disrupted or, you know, they're not really getting the restful sleep that they really need to yeah. grow and develop. Mm-hmm. And then they're under cautious, meaning that they put a, a lot of trust in these devices right. and they're not as accurate as we would hope. Mm-hmm. Like when we compare them to like um, our medical grade pulse ox monitoring and cardiac monitors, they're just not as accurate so you're going to be getting a lot of discrepancies between the those kind of home devices versus the medical grade equipment. Yeah. And so because it's not accurate, it's not really going to send the correct signals if there truly is a problem, or it's going to be sending a lot of false signals when there's actually nothing wrong. Mm. So parents will kind of put it on them, think that everything's fine, and then they won't really pay attention to the safe sleep environment. Mm-hmm. And so they'll just kind of like, oh, well, they'll be fine. The The monitor will they'll tell me, me if there's yeah. a problem. And that really just has not shown to be true. So if you look at maybe the opposite side of people, like you mentioned, super anxious parents who, right. who are just very nervous about all of it. Um, it really could just add to the anxiety and not Absolutely. do anything to really help you. So Absolutely. Going back to the things that we've talked about, the things that are are in your control, creating that safe sleep environment, like that's that that's trusted research. And that's what we need to to believe in (laughs) and and not maybe spend. um, Like I said, I I have so many friends who were very just you you want to add anything you can add to that peace of mind. But it's so interesting to hear from people like you that it's really not it's not doing anything for you. And it's expensive. It's not cheap. (laughs) And so um, that's a. It, that's a very interesting marketing tactic that these companies have yes. have have given to moms and kind of told you you need this to for your baby to be safe. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was kind of tempted even when yeah. I when I had my baby yeah. just because it sounds like so great in mm-hmm. theory. Yeah. You can constantly monitor your baby, mm-hmm. but it really doesn't replace your natural instincts as a mother to mm-hmm. take care of your child. Yeah. And that ultimately that's what you I try to empower mothers and fathers, you know, you can take care of your child and you can protect them as much as you can. And then ultimately there are some things that we can't protect against and we can't prevent, Mm -hmm. but at least, you know, you've done everything as a parent that you can to protect your child. Yeah. And I think that's what it all comes down to is just, and it's not just with SIDS, this was everything right with choking prevention and and feeding your baby the right things and and all those things. We've got to be as mindful as possible. And it's not exactly even our parents' generation is, oh, well, I didn't have that when we were growing up or we did seat belts or car seats or whatever it is, you know, (laughs) thankfully we have, I, I wonder what the rates were back in, you know, 60s, 50s, things like that versus what they are now with all the research that we do have. I can tell you they're so much better now. Great. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yes, definitely. You know, the the rates of sudden infant death syndrome, it really wasn't kind of a coin term until the 60s. So we don't really, really okay. have like data before that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have obviously always known that infant mortality was very high. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, going back to Bible stories sure, we know yeah. about, you know, babies who, you know, their moms rolled over on them in their sleep. Yeah. And that's a very unfortunate part of mm-hmm. kind of some of 
human history. But definitely the biggest ways that we have seen SIDS prevention is through safe sleep environment. And that really is the biggest key that we can enforce as far as putting your baby on their back to sleep every time they go to sleep and keeping their sleep environment free of any extra stuff that can cause suffocation or asphyxiation. What are your thoughts on pacifiers um, in the bed? Because I know that's a real comfort item for a lot of babies. So what age? Is it safe? So actually pacifiers, you would think are kind of a potential hazard, Mm -hmm. but they have actually been shown to be beneficial in um, regards to sudden infant death syndrome. There is obviously a correct way to use it, if you want to say that that way. So pacifiers are a great way to soothe babies because their natural instinct is to suck on something. Mm -hmm. And babies who maybe are hard to get to sleep. Mm -hmm. That is just something that soothes them to Mm -hmm. the point where they can actually fall asleep. Um, The important thing as far as the timing goes is you want to make sure that if you're breastfeeding, that you have established a good breastfeeding routine just because you don't want to dampen the actual hunger cues that you would be associating with feeds. Mm -hmm. And you also don't want to cause nipple confusion that could potentially interfere with breastfeeding. Okay. Other than that, you can really start at any point. The important thing to know is that you don't want to have any sort of attachment to the pacifier. So, you know, they have all the great little pacifier clips and things that keep it attached to clothes. But those, although they've gotten better over the years, so they're not as long, they can still potentially cause, um, you know, injury by wrapping around the neck and causing uh, issues. So loose pacifiers are better. Um, and they actually, for whatever reason, they have been associated with decreasing the risk of SIDS. They think it has something to do with how deep of a sleep the baby gets into. Okay. And it actually prevents them from getting into such a deep sleep that they don't wake up from it. Sure. So it keeps them kind of a little bit more alert, Mm -hmm. a little bit more active as far as their brainstem activity. And that ultimately helps them breathe better and wake up better. That's really interesting because I would think that it would almost be kind of the opposite, that that would be like maybe a choking hazard or something like that, but right. it's, it's, uh, it's totally fine. So. Certainly, you know, as far as the choking hazard, mm-hmm. if there's any like defect in the pacifier right. or once they start getting teeth, then you want to make sure that they're, you know, there's not little pieces of plastic right. that are potentially coming off. Okay. But obviously for one month old, that's not going to be as big sure. of a concern. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> I mean, I've seen a few babies with teeth, but not, not, not super not common. Not right? Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about the things that we can control. Unfortunately, you mentioned there are things that we just, there's nothing that we can do about it. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, and it is, you know, an unfortunate tragedy that there are about a third of the cases that we never really find good answers for. Um, baby is in a safe sleep environment. There are no other known risk factors. And unfortunately, some babies just, they they go to sleep and they don't wake up. Mm-hmm. And it's a tragic situation that, you know, we, as much as we try and prevent, there is just no known cause for it. There are certain times in a baby's development where it seems more 
possible that this sort of thing can happen. Um, most common times for the kind of unexpected and unexplained deaths are in the first week of life as babies are going through a lot of transitional um, physiology. Mm-hmm. And then again, between two to four months is also kind of a high time where we get a lot of developmental changes in baby and a lot of changes as far as like the brain activity and kind of how it regulates the body. And so there's some postulate that um, because of all of these changes in the brainstem activity, that is gets dysregulated and causes these deaths. But unfortunately, we just don't have any true answers for why it happens in some cases. Okay, so we're going to focus on the things we can control, yes. and um, and hope hope for the best, obviously, and and all the all the things that parents can do to um, make sure that their child is safe and right. in a good environment and fed correctly and, and all <laughs> exactly. of those things. One of the things that we do see when looking at the risk for SIDS is there is unfortunately a high racial disparity between the babies who die and. The African-American community, although they've made great strides, have definitely seen the highest prevalence of sudden infant death syndrome. It, the rates currently are about twice in the African-American community than in white communities. And actually, Hispanic communities have lower rates even than that. Yeah. So it's definitely something that we're trying to find ways that we can uh, improve those statistics. But for whatever reason, that is the current situation. Okay. Just something that the medical community continues to, to review and, and see what those those factors are, right? Right, exactly. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Nakashi. To learn more about pediatrics at Southwell, visit mysouthwell.com slash pediatrics. Thank you for listening to this episode of Live Well with Southwell. If you have a question for a healthcare expert or a topic you'd like us to discuss, send an email to info at myselfwell.com. Until next time, live well.